Hello and welcome to the EdSearch on Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Tony Wan, Managing Editor at EdSearch, a national outlet that reports on the people, ideas, and tools that shape the future of learning. This week, we take a look at impact investing, a term that has become increasingly common, one might even say trendy, in the education sector. Many investors, foundations, and even private equity firms have started so-called impact investment funds to support teaching and learning. One of them is the Lumina Foundation, which has awarded hundreds of millions of dollars in grants to universities and higher education nonprofits since 2000. In 2016, Lumina launched a venture capital arm to make direct investments in education companies. Unlike grants, these investments means that Lumina is now taking ownership stakes in some for-profit startups. We talked to John Duong, Managing Director at Lumina Impact Ventures, to learn more about why Lumina wants to get into the venture capital game and how its investments align with its overall strategy in higher education and the workforce. John also offers some thoughts on the idea of impact washing and how that has become a concern for the impact investment community. I sat down with John earlier this year at the ASUGSB Summit in San Diego, a gathering for education entrepreneurs and investors. It was a little rowdy in the main hall, and yes, you'll even hear some soft jazz in the background. Here are some highlights from our conversation. Our first guest to kick things off is John Duong. He is the managing director, right, of the Lumina Impact Ventures. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion. So Lumina Impact Ventures, that's a part of the Lumina Foundation. Correct. Tell us how that fits, how how that ties together. Yeah, so Lumina is the largest private foundation focused exclusively on higher ed. We have been like a traditional foundation in terms of making grants to various causes that align with our mission. And these typically are nonprofit organizations. Lumen Impact Ventures was the creation of sort of a venture investing arm. We started doing impact investing back in 2010 through creating what we call our sort of fund investment strategy. And essentially, we invested in a couple fund managers. Mm-hmm. The hope there was that we would be able to catalyze more investors into the education space. And back in 2010, there really weren't that many. I mean, one or two at most. New Market Ventures is probably one of the early ones. We were an anchor in that investor or investee. And then today, you know, there's a lot more. And hopefully, you know, a lot of that continues to help catalyze even more capital into the space. Human Impact Ventures was an evolution from investing in funds into doing direct investments into these companies. We view that this is a shift in how we think about partnering with entrepreneurs. How do we integrate our grant making work? by leveraging technology, services, and products from these innovative entrepreneurs, as well as figuring out a way to partner with other types of stakeholders that traditionally have not been what Lumina has, like most foundations, tend to partner with our our nonprofits. So what is the overriding thesis, or are there certain principles that guide the, the selection of the companies in your portfolio? Yeah, we obviously, because we're using grant dollars to make these investments, charitability is our first and foremost primary purpose. The IRS tax code requires us to structure these as PRIs or program-related investments. So first is charitability. Secondly, we try to make sure that we are a good strategic partner. We're not a financial investor. So when we make an investment into these companies, our goal is to be a very important, helpful partner in getting them where they want to go and making sure that we add value in a way that other potential strategic partners or investors cannot do or have not been able to do. And we want to support these really exciting, innovative entrepreneurs to continue to grow and scale, especially since they align with their mission. That helps us meet our mission better, faster, and cheaper. And then we can leverage outside capital that 
you know, at least 10 to 20 times during the holding period of our investment to match our own. So that's another really important factor for us is can we help attract other investors into this entrepreneur to help them scale and grow the business model and execute well. And of course, the learning return is really important for us as well, meaning that not only are we trying to drive a mission alignment and potentially financial return, but also the learning return, what we call essentially is an integration of our grant making work with the entrepreneur and vice versa. We think we can learn from the entrepreneur as much as the entrepreneur can learn from us. That learning return is what we think is a secret sauce for both parties. It's a little bit unique for what we can deliver for the entrepreneur. So it's called Lumina Impact Ventures. You describe it as kind of a social impact fund. Social impact funds kind of sound like it's a dime a dozen now. It almost yeah. sounds like kind of trendy to yes. start a social impact fund. So define what impact means for Lumina and how that yeah. may be similar or different to other social impact funds out there. Sure. So Lumina is exclusively focused on higher ed or post-high school learning, which makes us a very specialized vehicle. We are also a private foundation Unlike a lot of other private foundations that tend to invest in funds and or when they do it direct, it's sort of into a real estate project or a building. We are actually very actively engaged with the entrepreneur. This is not that different from how traditional venture funds invest. We think of ourselves as venture capitalists without the pay, in other words. So, so, yeah, we don't get paid like a venture capitalist. We get paid in knowing that we're doing something good mm -hmm. that can meet and align with their mission. But we think about impact across different aspects. So one is quantitative. Not surprisingly, how many students did we impact? How many adult returning students? Financing issues, questions around access and completion. These are things that we track that are measurable. On the other side are more qualitative stuff. So think about influence. Can our entrepreneurs potentially influence, whether it's you know, some type of regulation or changing the system, the way that credentials are being done, the infrastructure in terms of how blockchains are being developed into potentially being utilized for credentialing, all these different things, when we invest in an entrepreneur, those are the things that we also anecdotally capture as well because we think it's just as important. And then the last piece is leverage and influence slash somewhat quantitatively. How do we leverage and influence other investors to not only put capital potentially to co-invest, but maybe partner with them? So we connect them to particular stakeholders, it might be a nonprofit grantee of ours or another nonprofit or another for-profit that might leverage their technology to be utilized. So as an example, the National Restaurant Association, great partners of ours. We know them well on a grant making side, but their members may leverage some of the technology and tools from our portfolio companies. They're not aware of some of these tools. So this is a win-win for all stakeholders, right? right? So that's another National example. National Restaurant? National Restaurant Association, NRA. But not yes. the gun company or association. Last year. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. And how many investments has your team done? We have made 11 investments that are traditional investments. And then we've also backed four different accelerators. These are grant investments. So when I say investments there, it's actually a grant that we've given them to them. And what's the size of the check that you write for these investments? It varies depending on which stage the company is in. So we typically look at Series C, Series A, although we're agnostic. If we can be value added, we actually sometimes get invited to much larger rounds. Our check sizes are between 500 to a million and a half. And you know, essentially it just depends on the size of the rounds what makes sense for us. We are fairly agnostic in terms of the amount of the check, but minimum is 500, just given the amount of time and effort it takes for us to diligence these companies. So describe your portfolio a little bit or your recent investments. How would you bucket things that you've supported and how do they kind of tie into your broader mission? Sure. 
So the way that we think about higher ed is a very holistic approach, right? The foundation side has policy, whether it's state or federal. We work with employers and not surprising higher ed institutions trying to change the learning infrastructure, the ecosystem. We have a talent pathway working with communities and engaging them. On the investment side, we try to figure out where we can plug in to those various strands of initiatives within the philanthropy side. So our portfolio, particularly with the learning infrastructure, so is an example, Credly, which is our very first investment, clearly in the credentials place, digital competency-based credentials. Then we have technology that is specifically around data interoperability. So you think about government agency, a higher ed institution, they all have different disparate data sets. They don't talk to each other. We invest in a company called BrightHive to essentially make that data set interoperable. It could be applied in other sectors, other fields, but for us, because they're focused on higher ed and the government space initially, that was a good enough one for us. And then we look at student support services. Upswing is another company of ours, as an example. We really try to support entrepreneurs of color. I just want to mention that six out of our 11 companies are entrepreneurs or color or women. We are very specifically trying to make sure that we take a proactive approach to that. It's very important for us, given the demographic that we're trying to serve. And uh, Upswing, as an example, serves the community college sector initially, providing student support services like tutoring, nudging to make sure that these students know when their financial aid forms are due. So all of these different pieces align with Lumina's mission of ultimately increasing attainment in the higher ed space. Mm-hmm. So you've covered a lot of different topics or topical challenges you know, earlier in our conversation, everything from data interoperability to job skills to credentialing. Of all of these things, what's a couple of areas where you think the industry, as broadly speaking, has kind of made the most progress on? Like, what problems are we actually optimistic? That yeah, I think a couple of things. On the one hand, I would say that the shift away, and maybe this is some of Lumina's work and effort bearing fruit, away from the traditional focus on seat-based or hour-based credentialing. Right. Traditional higher ed is you sit in a classroom for this many hours and you do a bunch of exams and you get your degree. There's growing focus on competency-based learning or competency-based education. And we think this is really important because if you think about the really well-established high elite universities, right, you get a degree, people don't really care what you study. They just assume you have a skill and you can think. You come from a school that graduates 5%, 10%. That's a really challenging sort of a stigma because that degree won't mean as much. The shift away and towards, I should say, this competency-based approach, competencies as currencies is what we like to call it internally. The stacking of skills-based approach to how to vet somebody's capabilities as an employer, you're gonna care more about what that individual is able to do more than the degree that they came with because if that degree doesn't mean that much, you just wanna know they can do their jobs. So that shift is one thing that we're really excited about, and I think we'll continue to see that grow. Are there certain um, colleges or universities that you've seen make that shift meaningfully from a seat, you know, traditional seat-based, time-based model to a competency one, based one? There's actually a nonprofit called CBEN, the Competency-Based Education Network. And essentially, these are higher ed institutions that have really drunk the Kool-Aid. We actually spun that nonprofit out because this is a shift in paradigm, right? I won't signal out one versus the other because I don't want to pick favorites. But essentially, if you go to the CBEN network, that will give you some examples of that. And we also believe that learning doesn't happen to necessarily take place in the classroom. It could take place in the military. It could take place in the workforce. That's also a shift in terms of where and what education or learning is taking place. How are you able to, I mean, 
connect all of these different places where learning may be happening in a way that you know you can clearly show in a transcript or some kind of record to show your employers that sounds like one of the challenges i've read about yeah and that's a great question we spun out another nonprofit credential engine which essentially serves as a middle layer or it can take all different types of issued credentials and transcribe it there's actually i can't remember the exact name transcription language competency transcription language something like that anyways essentially it'll standardize or normalize all these different types of skills so that it doesn't matter where you got it from but it comes in and it can be transcribed in a way that when a job posting gets put out there and you actually tag it appropriately people know exactly what that skill is that's one way that it's happening and you know lumina is trying to play that role how do we make sure that all this stuff integrate interact and efficiently help drive that student learner going forward to make sure that they're successful and so what is the flip side of my earlier question what is a challenge that remains a nagging persistent frustration for you in this work I think a couple things one is the equity imperative which is very important for lumina again we want to serve low income we want to serve three specific demographic areas african american hispanic and native american because those are the population that have the greatest attainment gap right so i don't think we've done well yet if you look at the statistics the gap hasn't been closing so that's one of the areas that has been a challenge when you see the attainment gap you mean getting a post secondary yes, credential. credential yeah okay. exactly And then the second one is essentially how do you connect the dots between what someone learns from a higher institution to what an employer's skills are requiring. That disconnect is still there. I don't think we've done a great job at it. I think the market is more and more companies are focused on this workforce component, so it's starting to shift, but I think we're still not there. And there is no silver bullet, but you know, hopefully there will be better ways to attack that problem because employers clearly are trying to hire they can't fill their jobs and it is the higher institution and any other learning institutions job to fill those specific roles that that's what a lot of these individuals going to the education program are trying to get right it's not like hey i'm just going to go and learn which is fine if you have that luxury but the majority of people going into school are trying to get the skills necessary to get them that better professional career track and pathway. I think we're starting to see some interesting partnerships emerge with folks in the jobs and industry partnering with universities to at least make it clear what job skills would be helpful for prospective employees to know. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the pushback I sometimes hear is like how much do we want the industry and these employers to have a say or sway in what, you know, kids and students learn? Like is there a risk that post-secondary education becomes too influenced by the demands mm-hmm. of the job? and the employers. Yeah, I mean I think look it's um it depends on what is the purpose of an individual pursuing their educational goals. Look, someone's going to take basket weaving, there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's not going to get them a tech job. Fine. But there are people who can't even get a tech job that really are struggling. It doesn't have to be tech, it could be I don't know, uh some type of other technical skill or trade skill. Again, we often talk about tech because we're in Silicon Valley, but the reality is it could be any other high demand job that's like plumbing. That's a very high paying job, ironically, people don't realize compared to what people who don't have that skill. So, I don't have a problem with it as long as that isn't the sole purpose, right? It is an optionality that allows people the flexibility to improve their career and professional and personal situation, but it shouldn't be the limitation so that only for that specific purpose is education being pursued i don't i think that would be a mistake 
I think we should encourage folks to continue to learn, giving them that flexibility to pursue a career better because they're better equipped. But at the same time, you know, if they want to learn other things for the sake of learning, that's totally important too. Uh, I want to get your take on something else, a much more broader but national topic in conversation as it relates to post-secondary access. Yeah. And that's a college admission scandal. <laughs> what were your initial reactions to it? Yeah. So I, I'm going to caveat that this is John's view and not Lumina. That way I'm not going to get sued. Keep your job. Yeah, exactly. Keep my <laughs> job and not get sued. If I do get sued, I don't have a lot, so it don't matter. They're not going <laughs> to get much. I think there's a couple things. None of this is a surprise. I think the surprise is that someone got caught. But if you really talk to people, we know how the system works. We know how the game is played, and it's an uneven playing field. So that's really sad. But the reality is, none of this is a surprise. However, our job as a society, I think, particularly in philanthropy, is to make the field a little bit more equal. It will never be perfectly leveled. I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm optimist, but I still don't believe that it will ever be perfectly a, a level playing field. Our goal as a society trying to do good or government or philanthropy should be to take away any obstacle for social nimble. That way, if someone was willing to work hard, they should have as easy an access to a particular opportunity as somebody who's privileged. My view is really simple. I think if someone's willing to work hard and do whatever they can to get a certain place, let's take away all the obstacle that's blocking them from happening. It's never going to be easy, but provide them with enough of the access that I think they're not getting. It's unfair if you think about the system now, right? Somebody who's privileged is going to get all of these different advantages that someone who is not even aware of some of these opportunities is never going to get access to. And as a society, if you see this gap of wealth continue to grow, you're going to see significant concerns on society. I mean, was Ray DeLeo, the Bridgewater hedge fund founder, recently said, look, his biggest concern is there might be an uprising because of this gap happening in society. And it doesn't help the impact investing space either. Yeah, because one of the one of the guys charged, like he's founded one of the biggest social impact investment funds. Exactly. So how does um, that impact impact investing and its like reputation? Yeah. So first of all, look, the purists in impact investing are gonna say this is going to be a perfect example of traditional finance coming in because there's a huge demand for it, but they're not authentic and therefore there you go, I told you so. Impact investing from traditional investors is just wrong and they're just whitewashing. I think that's the wrong view. Quite frankly, I think we're going to need society and traditional finance to come into impact investing in the long term for this field to be sustainable, impactful, and doing what it's meant to do. The problem is that one bad example should not derail the whole momentum that we've seen in impact investing. I think in the long term, if this is supposed to happen the way that I am hopeful and optimistic that it can happen, we're going to see traditional capital, more and more of it coming in with more authenticity to drive the social change that we want to see happen. Eventually, impact investing is just going to be investing because overall, society is going to realize that to be sustainable long term, to be viable and successful, taking into account all different stakeholders, not just your investors, is going to literally make the world a better place, but also make your company much more valuable in the long run. And I think this is, it's my two cents, but I think this is a blip. A blip does not change what the end goal is. Yeah, I would say it's a blip, but I think it kind of emerges this term like of impact washing a little bit more yes, now. We think about it, it a little bit more in the back of our heads. It is. Right. Your final thought about what I said about impact washing. 
is that a concern for the reputation now of the investment yeah. community industries, for especially for someone like Lumina? I, I definitely think it is a concern, and this is where it's no different than when someone comes to us as a company saying that, "Hey, we are very impact oriented because we've got these many individuals that look a certain way that check the box." Mm-hmm. That is just the beginning of the scrutiny, right?、Mm-hmm. And when we do diligence on a company, we look at who they serve, the technology, what it's meant to do. Does it really serve our mission? Not just because they look a certain way. That's not enough. Checking the box is not what we're doing. So, from that perspective, impact washing is the same scrutiny that we should also look at, given the benefit of the doubt. But look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing in terms of investing in the type of companies that are actually impact oriented. Look at who and what they're trying to do. I mean. Words are one thing, but action really speaks louder than,、right. you know, anything. So that's、awesome. what we try to do. This has been the Ed Search on Air podcast, where each week we interview people who shape the future of learning. If you like us, please subscribe to our show wherever you're listening on. You can also support us by leaving a rating. This episode was produced by me, Tony Wan, with editing support from Nate Seki. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of learning. Thank you for listening.